Age. Yeah, so we are live right now. First time I think I've done Inside the War Room live, and no better guest than the one, the only, uh, Mark Rossano himself. Um, Mark, this is uh, good. Our monthly podcast, and just a quick apology to our listeners, uh, so you in the background, I've been moving and closing, and I'm in a new spot. The internet's hooked up, so uh, the podcast feed has Mark, and then Mark, Mark is scheduled because he's a gracious man once a month. So we will have more guests between now and the next time Mark comes on the podcast, I believe. I hope we better, or we're done doing our job. <laughs> Mark, it's good to get you back on, and let's get right into it, man. I had a guy text me yesterday a question, mm-hmm. and he said, make the case for why oil um, is you know 73 is too high. And I said, we got just the guy coming on tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> to talk about this. So tell us where we're at, why, why the price is too high, uh, sure. where, where it should be. Sure. So when when you know just just to take the the other side to that, when you look at what has happened over the uh, let let's just say the last month, and then what do we see going over the you know the next six months? When when you look out at the oil curve itself, you know you're in steep backwardation. There's there's this movement where there's we're going to have shortfalls right now, and you've seen a lot of these these uh, differentials blow out, and just differentials being between months when you look at Cushing and th- there's a lot behind that. So let's, let's peek, let's break that apart into, into what it is. So when we look at the refined product side right now, we're at a second highest ever for the amount of gasoline and storage, same with jet fuel. The highest ever was in 2020 and Dislit is in a fairly balanced place. And, and you have to think about how a refiner actually cracks oil. So when you look at what the refiners have done within the U S they've really ramped up their gasoline production, you know, taking that as high as it really can be given the crew that they're using with their running at max light, which is just a, a very light crude or a higher API of, you know, 40 to 45, but we're optimized between 33 and 34. So right now there's this disconnect between imports and, and what we have available. So they're trying to work through what they have available while they're waiting for the imports to come through. While this is happening, we're seeing our exports starting to drop off with by the end of June, we'll see them come under pressure in terms of less exports and a big surge in imports coming coming into the U.S. So when you look at what's happening right now, refiners are going to shift the way that they're running oil and, and just where they're pulling a lot of this crude from. Then when you look abroad, and this is something that I think is missed by the market for the, uh, at this point, is you have to look at Asia. And Asia is just not buying oil in the way that they have in previous years, in previous months. And, you know, you could say, well, India is coming back. Well, they are back and they've never really stopped running their refiners at an elevated level where the first um, the the first uh, COVID uh, lockdown, they went to about 60 percent utilization rate. And the low they hit was about 85, 86. And they're right back up to 95 percent. But we haven't seen the 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 demand side come back for the product. So now we're seeing a big outflow or exports of those refined products into both storage of Singapore and then bumping down into Fujara all the way into the Atlantic basin and then getting pieced off into either the uh, Europe, LATAM or the US. So right now we have this flood of product and the market is now ignoring the product side and focusing on the crude draws. And my whole thing is that you, you we're outpacing on the uh, on the product builds, outpacing on the crew draws, and then that's going to adjust 
but we're just not seeing the demand side come back to the way it needs to in order to adjust that. So we're going to see an increase in distillate builds over the uh, the coming months, and we're just not going to see these drawdowns in gasoline that we're hoping for, not because we aren't going to see summer demand, because we are, it'll be slightly below what it has been previously, but there's just so much floating product out there that it's going to come through. Then you look at Asia and, and you and you focus on the biggest guy in the room, which is you know China. And when you look at China, China's just not buying on the way that, that, that they have in the past. When we look at Congo, we look at Angola, we look at Nigeria. And now you, when you look at the spreads in general, you know, they're buying some from West Africa. Uh, I'm sorry, from the Middle East. You're seeing ESPO getting purchased. So it's really kind of a crude quality situation. They're coming in at the, they came at the uh, teapots. They cut uh, import quotas by 35%, which again, is just going to shift the way crude is moving. And then they put levies on some of the short cycle oil. So they're going to see their imports just continue to come down. But again, that's just going to displace oil, uh, crude runs in general. So we're just seeing a lot of noise and a lot of things happening and it's all coming back and then pushing back on the U.S. where we're going to start to see a slowdown in draws and, and even potentially builds, which I think is going to kind of break this narrative on, uh, you know, we're running out of oil because when you look at storage in general, we're still elevated. We still have over 30 days uh, in storage on, on days to cover and we have just more imports coming into the U.S., which is going to uh, keep that elevated. Now you guys have a primary vision the the frac spread. I haven't looked at it being on vacation. Where are we at in that? In some people have argued that U.S. production is not growing enough, and so eventually uh, we'll get over that curve, and all of a sudden mm -hmm. you'll see a nice draws. So why don't you buy into that thesis? So when you look at where we sit right now, we on a national level we're at two hundred thirty five, and <clears throat> our view was that we were going to have a quick run back. <clears throat> Excuse me, we are going to have a quick. Uh, increase of spreads. Spreads were going to come through in general. <clears throat> so we were going to get spreads coming back and then rigs were going to slowly come and then they were going to accelerate into Q3. So when we look at what we've seen so far, so far that has come to pass. And when you look at the estimates, the estimates are using rig models, not frac spread models. So we're at, a, we're producing at about 11.3 to 11.5 you know, million barrels a day. We think we have an exit rate of 11.5 with a higher end of 11.7, but it's really that 11.5 million barrels a day that's, that's gonna make the most sense. And the, the reason why the delta between where we were of 13.5 and where we are right now of 11.5, all of that had to be exported. We don't have the refining capacity to crack that oil and make it usable. You know, the refiners have, tried to increase their ability to run lighter end crudes, but that is all really destined for the export market. And we just saturated the market. There just wasn't the demand for the crude that we were producing. So we've seen that pair back. And now we're going to get within this, this I, I think, comfortable realm of what we're, we're about 11.5, 11.7. And when we talk about oil demand in general, especially on a global level, you have to break it into its pieces because I think it's becoming more and more important and apparent that NGLs and condensate or you know naphtha is is seeing that demand. We are, we've seen a lot of pet chem new, uh, capacity come on. There's a lot of petrochemical demand. If you buy into the the green transition, the movement into renewables, whether or not you agree with it or don't, it requires a lot of plastic. Like there's a lot of plastic that goes into that. So we need a lot of pet chem. 
So that's going to support our NGL side. So now that we've kind of maxed out or we, we've hit a, a, a strong running rate on oil production in the U.S. in terms of frac spreads, you're going to see rigs run back. And then I think we're, we're going to see the next leg of frac spreads is really going to be de uh, deployed into the NGL, like the liquids heavy regions at this point, just because there's so much demand going into Asia. So what's your read on natural gas? Because I think it's at three. <clears throat> 40, does that sound right? Uh, we're at 325. 325, right 325. How much of that is really just the fact that U.S. oil production, especially like the Permian, has dropped off? Or is it really we've seen that much increase in demand? So it, it's a mixture of both. We, we've seen some pressure on the supply side. You know, they, when we talk about frac spreads, a lot of, or if not all the growth that we've seen over the last couple of months has been on the oil side. Is, and if anything, the the liquid side and not on the natural gas. And now we're starting to see some natural gas capacity come back. But you've also had hiccups. You had some unplanned downtime coming out of the Marcellus coming uh, south. But it, the, the thing that nobody likes to talk about is coal, is coal prices. I mean, coal prices have exploded on a thermal side when we look abroad that it's just it's helping LNG. We're seeing a ton of LNG get pulled into the market and a lot of support on just pricing when we look at Europe, when we look at Asia. And that's keeping our flows very healthy. So when you look at exports, the export market remains strong. We've had uh, several heat spells that have come through that have helped draw down some of this excess uh, storage. And it's changed the, the dynamic where supply remains low because we, we aren't producing 13 million barrels a day. We're producing 11.5. We haven't been producing all that aggressively in the uh, gas side, and then you have the LNG uh, exports, and then you have local demand that remains ro uh, robust. All right, let's talk China. <laughs> you, you brought it up. I've been waiting. Uh, let's talk China. <laughs> I'm always happy to talk China with you. <laughs> okay. Um, I think – let's see if we agree on some of the narrative. The narrative was, um, you know, China locked down. Um, the Chinese people generally save more money, so their economy was going to rebound quicker. The communist nature of their regime would allow them to pour money into where it needed to go. Their economy was going to come back. It was going to bounce back. And then 2021, they were going to rule the galaxy, I think was the narrative. Was it? Yep. Did I get that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've... I've, been, I've been saying that was wrong from the beginning. <laughs> just, just, just wanted to highlight that. Okay. That was wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because, um, and I've, I've wanted to tease this out with you some. I don't think we talked about this. I really think in the West, we have got to look at China the way that we look at the DMV. And here's what I mean. Let's just, for the sake of argument, say that everyone thinks we need a DMV. Okay, it has a purpose. It does something well, but it's not very efficient. That's the Chinese government at large. They're going to do some things. They serve a purpose. They have taken people out of poverty. That's real. But they are going to whiff catastrophically over and over and over again. And we have in the West, we have to quit looking to China and go, oh, my gosh, they got it figured out. Because, I mean, I live in a town, my, my, the county I live in has 60,000 people. The city has 13,000. There is a town that before I moved here, uh, the DMV burned down. Mm -hmm. They didn't rebuild it here. They rebuilt it down in a town that has like, 500 people <laughs> like that's what government does right <laughs> like, there's, there's no logic to it there's literally no stop there's literally no traffic light like a uh, red light there mm -hmm. they rebuild the dmv there that's what that's how we should view what china does they're going to make some big leaps 
but they're going to whiff catastrophically. Um, what is your, what's your take on how we should view China? Um, apart from the data, I want to talk about the data too, but just how yeah. we should view their actions. You know, their, their actions are always going to be large and impressive and, and splashy, but then you have to look at, well, what was the end effect? And when you when we talk about their debt to GDP level, when you think of 275% of debt to GDP, well, you've clearly invested poorly because none of that investment is actually yielding some growth on the back end because you want to have a multiplier effect greater than one. You want to actually be able to take that money, say that you invested a dollar and you're going to earn three. Instead, you're investing a dollar and earning 80 cents. So that means that, that that difference is going to have to be made up by tax revenue or some other form of government uh, transfers. So when you look at the shift that they've tried to implement, which is the dual circulation strategy, trying to drum up the local consumer. And it's important to pause here and talk about you know Asian culture. Now, this is, this is not just a Chinese thing. This is Japan, Korea. They don't spend like Americans, like Europeans. They, they have a saving culture. So when you think about a saving side, they're never really going to spend to the same degree that an American with a, a brand new credit card is going to go on a shopping spree at the mall. The mall used to be a thing. Now it's prime day. But <laughs> you know, when, when, when you look at just how things have shifted in general, and they're trying to now drive people out of the urban setting into the suburban rural setting mm -hmm. to try to, to break up and expand because they've seen a lot of overcrowding. They, they, but what do you need to do that? You need, uh, well, how am I going to get home? So you need right. rail, you need, you know, high powered, uh, you know, electricity. You, so mm -hmm. you need these massive ultra, uh, high, uh, uh, high powered electrical wires. So then you need to talk about transmission, but then when you look at the redundancy, you don't, you don't want those high powered lines. You want something a bit more stepped down and then, you know, the cost. So they're seeing a lot of these costs because they've, they've taken everybody from the rural to this, to this, mm. to the urban. And now they're saying, Oh, by the way, we were wrong. We have to go back out. Mm -hmm. Now you look at the one China policy, you know, they had the one China policy. Then they had the two, the two child. Now they're at three child. I mean, at what yeah. point do you just well, let people be people and let them make their decisions? Okay, so let me a couple things here. One, um, on the on the savings thing, my theory on that is is that it's you have a cultural aspect potentially, mm -hmm. but th most of the um, I'm going to say what we consider boomers here in the U.S. They live through their latest version of the Great Depression. Right, they can remember living out in the rural parts where it was tough, or right. their friends died and starved to death. Mm -hmm. And so, I think part of that culture is just kind of like our grandparents were really frugal. They're in that. I'm not sure that trend will continue as they moved into the city, um, mm -hmm. and it feels like cash is a little bit easier to access. So that's that's something to watch because I'm not sure the people that our age or younger will have that same right. mentality because they they're going to view cash as flush. Um, the ability to spend and access, whereas their parents and grandparents will have that mentality. So that may shift on them. The other thing is, is the three-child policy, and this goes back to what I was saying about the U.S., um, the one-child policy was enforced. It wasn't, you know, so, so you have that. The three-child policy is an encouragement. When you look at how the European nations have tried to incentivize people to have children, policy doesn't incentivize people to have children normally. Like, it takes a lot. That's a mindset. That's a cultural thing. That is something that you can't say, uh, have more children or we're going to incentivize it. It might work small uh, on a small scale, but mm -hmm. it's not enough to rebound the nation. China's got a big problem here because they did cold the population with one child because they could enforce that. 
that they're not going to open up the books and say, oh, three children, Chinese people, American people, European people. It just doesn't work that way. And so right. um, I think that they have a huge, huge problem with the demographic issues and the fact that they are going to a three-child policy. Um, you know, from the West perspective, we should look at that and realize, okay, huh. And then, but my, my, my guess here is that it won't work. What's your take on that? Well, the problem, and <clears throat> it was the Financial Times did, did a, a great expose on it. I think it was the, um, uh, the South China uh, Daily. And they talk about the hidden cost of a child in China. And even though they have free um, education, they talked about the rampant bribes, the tutors, the, mm -hmm. all of these underlying costs. And then when you look at the one child policy, which has run through, a lot of the parents that now have children are, are you know, just based on the cultural side, they feel it obliged to take it or, you know, forced to take care of their parents. Right. So now you have you have one parent that is trying to further their child and paying whatever it takes to have them succeed while also trying to take care of two parents because you only have one child taking mm -hmm. care of, of your set of parents. So you're looking at these extend, extenuating circumstances, the increasing cost, and it's just, it, it's not feasible. And then when you look at, you know, speaking to China and some of that, you know, taking people out of poverty, well, sure, you, you, you might be able to eat, but are you really successful? Are you, are you really putting money in the bank? Do you really have this, 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 uh, discretionary cash to use. And the answer is no. A and you really don't have this, 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 uh, this excess. And that's where we continue to see them struggle. Like if you look at May, May was supposed to be the spending cycle. Like they were going to incentivize. It was government driven. The CCP said, look, we want you to spend. We're going to incentivize companies. There's going to be sales. There's going to be discounts. And what happened? There was a big swing and a miss because people still aren't spending. You're, you're still not seeing people open up. And it's because there are a lot of these hidden costs that I think we don't appreciate in, a, in, in you know, outside of China, even though we continue to see it time and time again, where the local consumer just doesn't show up the way we think it's going to. Right. right. So your read is then as we move forward to 2021, 2022 how much pain will we see come from the chinese um and, and you know how much they publicly acknowledge one thing but you know um you know it's it's not just these things you also have food issues as well right, right? They're, they're dependent on importing food mm -hmm. um to feed their people um so how much more pain do you think china has in front of them I, I think it's it's sizable. And and when we look at what's happening in on a political level, you know, you're seeing supply chains move out and you're starting to see this pain in terms of just, you know, okay, well, where's the next investment coming from? You know, they've been trying right. to to uh to cut um, you know, as I harp on Twitter and, and the P and PVN, I always talk about the credit impulses and how they're trying to take money out of the system, they're trying to tighten things down, and you're not they're trying to get inflation under control, but the last two years, they had these 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 pockets of massive flooding and droughts, and now this year they're seeing massive droughts. So when you look at these bumper crops that we're hoping for, we're just not going to see it this year. After seeing a very tough 2020, now we're going to have a very tough 21 into 22. And even though we talk about the one China policy and, and all these different things, they still have a massive populace that they have to feed. And they just don't have the capacity to feed themselves. So like you said, they have to come to the, the export market. So then you look at Brazil. Brazil has had massive droughts. 
and droughts don't only kill yield they also kill the infrastructure and mm. the and mm -hmm. the supply chain because if you have a drought well then the river levels are going to fall so then the barges can't be filled as high so then you have right. to cut the barges and then you increase rot and you you just have this this exponential problem that continues to reverberate and then you look into the global market you're you're short ships you know you can't get them because you don't have the sailors because of different restrictions you you're slow steaming you you then you get to the port and now you're sitting there for 20 days and and you're worried about well is the stuff in my bar uh, in the belly of the ship going to go bad and now you're starting to see all of these implications that are just ex you know creating this this bottleneck but that also leads to higher prices. Higher prices lead to pain on the consumer. Pain on the consumer means they're not going to spend as much because they're concerned about the future. And it just continues to, to, to cycle on itself. And we're just not seeing any real way to get ahead of that. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, so let's go to India now. You mentioned them a minute ago. I haven't looked at recently what's going on with gasoline there. But the last time I looked, uh, I know there was, there was uh, the prices were pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. They have huge taxes on their gasoline. Yeah. Um, Obviously, that's going to impact their economy, their ability to, to get people moving around, doing things. What's going on with India? Well, when you look at India, so India now has a record amount, uh, a record price for petrol prices, both diesel and gasoline. But as you said, they increased the gasoline tax uh, 10 percent uh, in 2020. And, and the problem is they're running a record deficit. So they're running a record deficit, and that's including the gasoline tax. So how do you cut the tax and increase your deficit, given the fact that you are an emerging market, you're susceptible to the fears of inflation, your borrowing costs are already higher, and you have both an easy monetary policy, an easy fiscal policy, and you're running at 6.1% inflation. Now, just based on everything we've just said, whether we look at PPI, whether we look at energy, whether we look at food, there's going to be a lot of support to see inflation running hot in India. And then when you look at just where the, the money flows, you know, and the same goes to China, you know, you look at China, China's struggling where the CCP has to, has to essentially kick out all of this money into the provincial and village level, because some of these, some of this debt that they've issued since 20, uh, 2008 and accelerated in 2016 is being funded by uh, tax revenue. And the tax revenue is now drained down and they can't actually pay government officials. They can't provide services. And you're seeing some a lot something like that happening in, uh, in India. And when you look at the farmers that have staged strikes, staged protests, you're continuing to see this strife between the urban and suburban side and then into the rural farming side. And it's just the cash is running dry and, and who's getting what you know, how are those, how are those getting distributed? And there's a lot of that conflict that continues to happen within India itself. Yeah. Okay. So we've got bad news in China, bad news in India. Before I ask my next question, is there good news anywhere? <laughs> so, so the answer, the answer is yes. You know, you, we are coming out of a pandemic and, and you will see some flow. And, and when you look at India and you look at the Southeast Asian nations, So when we talk about moving supply chains out of China, well, they have to go somewhere. And when you look at the natural beneficiaries of moving supply chains out of China or diversifying a bit more, that's Vietnam, that's Malaysia, and that is India. And when you look at India, just based on the, the, um, the installed base, you know, the ports that they have, the infrastructure that is already there, a very educated populace, there's a lot of growth to, to, to be had within that region. 
especially when China and uh, is becoming a bit more aggressive. If you think about the, uh, you know, the, the, the tiger, uh, the, you know, policies that they're trying to have, you know, that's, that's pushing people more into our corner. And you're looking at Australia, uh, Japan, South Korea, the U S and now India trying to come up with a means. And, and what is that? It's not just means of, well, we're just going to give you support and throw money at you. Well, let's let's work on trade. You know, let's let's work on how can we make this mutually beneficial. We have a semiconductor shortfall. You know, we have we need investment, and I think that there's a lot that to be gained on both sides over the longer term. Okay, so we we have this, um, and then at the same time we have El Salvador, which is trying to make Bitcoin legal tender. <laughs> you have this global corporate tax that's being mm -hmm. talked about. Might we see the emerging markets actually put in good policy that would incentivize um, a lot more of these supply chain companies to come and invest in their, in, in their countries? Um, they obviously won't become G20 countries overnight, but could you see that the emerging markets, if they're shrewd, take this opportunity to say, you know what, if, if the U.S. and China, whatever they want to do these taxes, whatever, let them do it. You know what, we're going to knock the taxes out of the way. We're going to open up. We're going to invite you in. Um, could you see that happen? And we see some countries that have some exponential growth because they look at what these big co co countries are doing and they just do the opposite. So the short answer is yes. Uh, the longer answer, it, it, it's complicated. And it always comes down to who's in power. You know, is it someone who's corrupt, who's going to need kickbacks? And when you look at emerging markets, a lot of times, you know, or more times than not, you have someone that got to power through maybe questionable means, which has you know, eroded some of that confidence or has taken away some of the ability to operate effectively in that country. And, but there are places where that isn't the case. And, and you have seen some very natural growth and some expansion. So I think you're going to see an opportunity for individuals and, and corporations and countries to take advantage of this again, as they try to move the assets and, and try to diversify the supply chain, but it comes down to <clears throat> ports, populous and uh, infrastructure. And more importantly on infrastructure, it's going to be uh, the electrical grid. What does your grid look like? Is it sustainable? Is it some, and not sustainable in the sense where it's powered by solar panels, but sustainable in the sense where I'm not going to have rolling brownouts. Right. I'm going to be able to increase the amount I'm pulling off of this grid in order to you know manufacture. And those are things that I think are, are going to become bigger investments because they can happen on, on both sides. So just to give you an example, when you look at what's last, to come out of China, it's a lot of the technological uh, assembly, which is is uh, requires a lot of juice, requires a lot of power. So, what can you do if you look at Vietnam? Well, how about Samsung coming in? They buy, they build the factory, they incentivize because they pay a long term contract with a, an electrical producer. They agree to take down sixty percent of that power, <clears throat> and now you have. 40% of that power to give to the people that are going to work at that facility, build villages around it. And you can start to see some of those deals coming through. And I, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for that in some of these emerging markets because they are open and just based on where they are logistically, you can definitely bring some of this new capacity in and see some of these deals being created. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so let's think about like, let's think about this. You mentioned ports. One of the things I've thought about a lot is um, the past know, six, seven months is these African sub-Saharan African conditions that don't have port access. That is a big um, wedge point or stifling point, whatever you call it, mm -hmm. um, for them. 
and I've talked to some people um, about this idea. Could we see some of these nations potentially let bygones be bygones and merge? Because those landlocked countries in Africa, they have an uphill battle. Yeah. The the problem is when you look at just <clears throat> the way the world you know was created, it was geography. And geography is so important because geography created tribes. And the question is, what is the tribal history? Is it something where you can actually set that aside and say, look, yeah, I don't have coastal assets, but I have a ton of raw materials and I can use those more raw materials and I can sell them to you. Or, you know, we'll share a rail, you know, I'll get 70%, you get 30% and we'll utilize your ports. There's a lot of deals that can be made on an economic level that don't have to be on a unity side. But just because there, there might be, you look, we're too different. We, we, we're going to operate differently, but there's an economic incentive in the sense where you need us, we need you, and it's going to decrease costs for everyone. And it's going to increase quality of life. So I think it, the first would be to come at it from an economic perspective, show the benefits, then deliver the benefits. Cause that's always the thing. It's like, we come in, we issue hundreds of billions of dollars in debt. Everyone thinks they're going to win. And then they're just, they're bleeding money. And then at the end of the day, it, you're not getting the revenue you expected. So deliver the economic benefits and then start talking about, okay, well, here's the economic. Now we can start talking about what, if we could, should we, should we have some political unity? Should we have some, you know, in EU for Africa, you know, not to say that we have to go down the route of the same, uh, currency, but to have some sort of political, um, uh, cohesion, if you will. Well, if you're going to do something like the EU, at least make it effective. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't like the euro. So that's why I'm saying the euro is, is its own thing. But it's just in terms of some sort of cooperation. Because think about what the European Union started as. The European yeah. Union started as back in the 70s in, in terms of just moving commodities. Like just make right. it easier to go right. from one country to the next. Right. Well, let's let's do that. Can Can we get some sort of economic cohesion to move that through to benefit all uh, parties uh, um, involved. Yeah, it's interesting because the EU has some advantages and disadvantages. I, I do think there is, at least among the populace, um, a growing sentiment of maybe we could work together more. And, you know, pre-internet era, I think people were so much kept in the dark, whether U.S. or Africa or wherever, about who was across the border, who lived over there, what they think, what they do. Those things are slowly unwinding. And so some of these ideas, um, you know, about the corruption in these African nations. Well, back in you know, 1950, you could hide it. You know, you, you could right. just tell your people, this is how it is. This is how it has to be. And well, now you can't, you know. And so um, I think some of these things are unwinding, um, but obviously won't be un unwound overnight. Okay, let's talk about the dollar. Are you still mm -hmm. bullish on the dollar? Yeah, yeah. So I, I you know, I, I it, the dollar is something that I think was going to see a lot of support. And the reason why I think it's going to see support is, one, I think we will see a increase in rates. We're going to see rates continue to move up. And what do you need? You need dollars to do that. <clears throat> There's rising inflation concerns in the emerging market. And you need dollars to help support your FX uh, currency. So when I look at just the dollar right now, I think you have a people that are max short dollar. I think there's a lot of pressure here where everyone's looking at inflation, additional stimulus, 
And, and I think that has been played out at this point in terms of where things are on the way the dollar is positioned. I think the carry trade is going to start to close. So if you think about the, you know, and the carry trade being you short one currency, you buy another and then buy their debt. You've seen a lot of moving out of the dollar into Europe and, J and Japan. And I think you're going to start to see some of that orb close. And we're just coming from, you know, because every algo and Watson in the world looks at uh, technicals, we're coming to a technical support point that I think you're going to see some of this pressure to the upside. So I think there's a fundamental buyer, but there's also that technical driver that will will shake things up a bit on the dollar strength. Okay. So you talk about interest rates. We have to raise them at some point. Do they get raised before midterms though? Uh, no, no, no. So I, 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 I think, um, well, hold on, hold on. Let's unpack that for a second. Sure. Because if they do, I think it's important to point out if they get raised before the midterms, the Democrats are going to obliterate right? They have no shot. They, they lose every, not every seat, but every swing state seat they would lose. There's going to be a lot of pressure on the inflation side. And, and when you see inflation, you know, people are always going to vote for their wallets where they see the pain. And then they're always going to attribute that pain to who's in power, regardless of if they should or shouldn't. That, that's irrelevant. It's just that's the correlation that we're going to see. The, the problem right now is there's still $120 billion uh, a month being pushed into the market on QE. So when you look think about this on a holistic level, how about we just stop printing money before we start increasing rates? And and now we, we know on, the Fed on. is reacting. Actually, yeah. If you're, we're, uh, what was the number? $120 billion how, how yeah. often a quarter? Uh, it's per month. Per so month. that's $120 okay. billion per month. Okay, so take 10% of that. You have five to mark, five to run, and then stop, <laughs> and then stop. <laughs> then we're good. We're good. So just, we're just, good. Have, just have the Fed bank. Just have the Fed bank. Just have the Fed give you a debit card. Just put ten thousand dollars a month in it, and we're we're good to go. <laughs> you know, if you want to increase inflation exponentially, just give everybody a debit card linked to the Fed the Fed balance sheet. I, I like my idea better. Just take ten percent of one hundred twenty billion. Me and you split it five percent apiece, and then they quit printing money. I think that would be a better solution. I mean, and, and then, I'm okay with it. We'll just talk about this stuff every day. So, anyways, right. I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to make sure for uh, Mr. Powell, who's listening, he understood <laughs> that that option is on the table. It would yeah. ease a lot of pain on my end. I mean, it ease a lot of pain on my end as well. So sure. <laughs> So when 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 you look at the 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 side, you know, and and I always come back to the reverse repo, just because it's a temporary movement of of money out of the system you know people talk about oh they're draining money it's like no it has to come back so when you look at the reverse repo we're now over 700 billion where it's, where it's most likely going to hit a trillion as we go into quarter end you know we've saturated the market we've the banks essentially said we don't have anywhere to put this capital so 0.05% or 5 basis points is perfectly fine take an extra 235 billion so i think right now the cycle is the Fed is reactionary. They're never going to raise rates without the market telling them to raise rates. And I and I think that we're going to start to see some acceleration on, you know, cutting some of that QE. Now, on, on the dollar side and rate side, QE or quantitative easing outpaced treasury issuance in Q2. So that naturally depressed rates because you have a natural buyer. So if you think bond prices and yield are inverse, so as prices go up, then yield is going to drop. And that's what we had in Q2. Even though we had these massive inflation prints, everyone's like, why are rates going down? Well, you had a natural imbalance. You had treasury uh, issuance just not there. So people were, you know, the Fed's buying what's already in the market. So now that switches. 
because you know we have tax receipts. You have a lot of things. You have a lot of cash at the treasury. And now that's gone. Now in Q3, you're going to start to see that shift. And and the, and if as we go through, that's going to be the other side of why the Fed can't cut 120 from 120 billion to 100 because we we would need to see additional foreign buyers or local buyers and that would require a higher interest rate and higher interest rates would not be a good thing for the market right now. So when they do eventually raise the rate, where will the pain point be? Who what industry is going to hit hit the hardest? I I think it's the um the growth names because when you think about growth names, what do you need? You need debt. You know, you're not you don't have revenue yet. You're mm -hmm. you're still trying to get there so you're living off of your balance sheet. And if that balance sheet cost is going up, then your hurdle rate is going higher. And that's going to become a much bigger problem as you go forward because your interest expense is going to go up. So that's where I think you're going to see a lot of that pain points. But then speaking into the international world, emerging markets. So emerging markets price off of our 10-year. Mm -hmm. And if the 10-year continues to drift higher, if there, if you see that moving up, then you have the their inflation problems, their cost of borrowing is going to go up that's where you're going to see additional uh, problems. So for me, it's always been emerging markets and growth stocks at this point. Okay. All right. We are going to wrap this one up a bit ahead of schedule just because I've been moving and um, <laughs> things are kind of crazy. Final question. We did answer this, but this is a, a good tease from the beginning. We talked about where oil prices are, why they're overinflated. Where should they be? So if you were to take this and and put it where they normally are based on the days to cover, based on where storage is, where some of this is, you know, they should be closer to 55, 60. Mm -hmm. uh, there is inflation in that in terms of where some of the inflation is, but futures go off of expectations and narrative has been king. It remains king. I, you can't shake that narrative. And the view is that you know, there's going to be a drawdown coming. And that is where people are trying to get in front of that, which is on my side, it's like, well, if you think it's coming, well, go out and buy that futures contract. Right. Why are you buying front month? Like go out. And that's where, you know, the people have tried to take advantage of spreads. And then the, uh, the refiners, which I think have run well ahead of, uh, of where they should be at this point in time. Okay. Do you want to fire any shots at big Warren? Cause he will watch this <laughs> at some point. So do you want to get any big, he can't respond right now. He's sitting in uh, wherever he's at in the world. I don't know if, he, if it's public or not, but you know, he's over. In, he's he's in the EU right now, eating right. bonbons and sipping Earl Grey tea. If you want to fire any shots at him, go ahead. This is your job. <laughs> well, I I, I I do appreciate all of the stuff that he does on the physical market. You know, I, he loses me when he talks football or soccer or whatever <laughs> you want to call it. So I I, kinda, I just block those out. But you know, the, when when you look at you know where do things sit, just just based on how he sees the world, I think it's a, a very interesting way to kind of counter where some of this excitement is, where the narrative is that we're going to be at one hundred fifty dollar oil. I think it's just a good grounding of well, let's be realistic, let's look at the data, let's look at where things sit, and then what are expectations going forward. Okay. Well, Big Orn, he said nicer things about than I would have. So we'll we'll leave it there. Okay, Mark, where can people find you? Connect with you. Um, where you will send them to? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn or at uh, Primary Vision Network on uh, YouTube, where we uh, launch our uh, our own site or PVMI.com. And what shows do you have coming out this week? So we have the Economy Show coming out on Thursday, which is just looking at the macroeconomic world, like we talk about China every week. Uh, you know what's happening within the U.S. We have the EIA show where we look at you know the energy markets. Uh, 
holistically looking at supply and demand, talking about not just oil, but also refined products and why that's so important. And then the uh, primary vision uh, frack spread show that comes out on Friday, giving you an update on U.S. activity and completions in the uh, in in the lower 48. All right. Well, it was good to talk to you, buddy. And uh, for listeners, Mark will be on again, I think, next month, right? And so yep. we'll talk to you then. Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon.